Welcome back, America. That music means the Hilldale Dialogue is upon us once a week. We spend an hour with Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College. This week we're starting early because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will be joining us at the bottom of the next hour. So Dr. Arn kindly got up early. He's very rarely seen around the college campus of Hillsdale before 10 a.m. But he got up early this morning to speak with us because it's an important weekend. And Dr. Arn, good morning. I, I wonder if you have a comment on Lil Wayne endorsing the president last night because I know he's on your playlist. Yeah, well... If Little Wayne says it's good, it's got to be good. There you go. I, I, I just think it's got it's got Democrats very unnerved that cultural icons of the young African American community, uh, and I'm talking about Fifty Cent and Little Wayne. I'm not sure Ice Cube is anymore among the young African American community. Are coming out giving the thumbs up to Donald Trump. What do you think that means? Uh, well, the polling shows that Trump is doing better than. Uh, you know, and even to some show a lot better with young African-American males. And, you know, that's he's a Trump is a tough guy. And they appear to admire that. That's one of the, it's in the New York Times this morning. They speculate that because he's a tough guy and they like toughness. Uh, I think in general that, you know, he's been making inroads in African-Americans and communities and, and Hispanics. And I think that's got to do with law and order as much as anything else, because, you know the 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 wave of riots in the summer were different than the Rodney King riots in L.A. and then corresponding around the country because they weren't just focused in the inner city; they also went out into the richy parts of town. But having said that, they started in the inner city, and there's just a lot of destruction in those places too. So they're you know that who has an interest in that? You know why is why is that a good thing for African Americans? It is not. And that is, you know, it's a it's a fascinating thing in Minnesota where Jason Lewis, you may know Jason, has pulled within a statistical tie in some places with Tina Smith, who no one has ever heard of. I think that's because of the Minneapolis riots. I think that's because downtown Minneapolis is a wreck a- yeah. after the riots. Was it a dozen Minnesota mayors, Democratic mayors have endorsed Trump? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they got together as a group and announced it. And, you know, the. Uh, this law enforcement stuff, that, that stuff is radical. That's, it's remarkable that, uh, that huge swaths of the elite population endorsed these riots. And, you know, then they went through phased withdrawal. Then they said they weren't riots. And then they said, you know, there were few of them. And then they said, no, no, nothing to see here. But the truth is, a bunch of our cities are still dysfunctional, and and they're not doing it. Did you, did, people should look up the uh, Seattle chief of police, uh, a black woman, and she she first made a video and then she resigned a few days later, and in this video she said that uh, the the rioters took a police station, burned it, and then set up a kind of headquarters in this half burned out building, and the cops didn't take the building back. And she went on TV and said, I began my career in that precinct, as many of us did, and that's our home. And we're not taking our home back, and that is not my decision. Uh, And then a few days later, she quit. Uh, And she's, you know, she's, I don't know much about her, except that she's doubtless a liberal woman. You know, she's a, uh, I've read that she is that. And she was appointed, I think, by a, 
city council and a mayor who were, you know, that's Seattle. What are they like? But she just couldn't stomach this, right? And uh, what, the New York City cops have, uh, the union has never, they don't endorse national figures, and they've never endorsed a Republican, and they endorse Trump. And Well, uh, let me ask you, if you have watched the uh, Masterpiece Theater series Endeavor, which is set in Oxford and is a British detective show. Have you watched it? Yeah, much of it. Remember, okay, I married so, an English woman. That's right. Well, Inspector Fred Thursday, in the episode I saw yesterday, referred to himself as a proper copper yeah, and yeah. that he was going to quit if he couldn't be a proper copper. And the proper coppers are of a, of a piece this year. All the proper coppers are with Trump. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, the cops... I mean, this, you know, if you just look at the statistics, first of all, if the cops shoot an innocent person of any color, that's a terrible thing. And, you know, if they do it negligently or willfully, they should, they should be prosecuted for it, and yes. they are. Yes. But they don't shoot very many people, and, and they shoot fewer and fewer every year, and they shoot young black men uh, seldom. And and so the problem is not, uh, you know, it, it, you know, George Floyd, right? He was a criminal. Uh, he, you know, when the trial comes, we'll find out all about that. I, I believe that was murder, Doctor Ern. I actually believe when I watch that, although there is fentanyl in his system, and I know his background, but I do not believe the William Wallace incident in Philadelphia this week is murder. I believe that uh, was an excuse to riot. And I, I, I'm afraid that we now have a, a queuing situation that when uh, a young black man is shot anywhere under any circumstances, a riot will follow. I, I, I do worry that that is a problem in the country now. Yeah. And see, in the case of Floyd, that, thing, that you know, that video is horrific. Right. I agree with you about that. But, you know, you can't condemn a man for murder by watching a video. You know, well, you know, a, I, I, I have to dispute you on that. I always think O.J. Simpson murdered Nicole and Ron. I've always believed that. I don't care what the jury says. On the basis of my eyes and my ears, I've come to that conclusion. I'm not a juror, though, and I couldn't serve as a juror because I've come to that conclusion. Right. Right? That's, That's the difference. Right. Can, I, can I bring up something different to you? Because this, uh, this happened this morning as I left the house for the studio. Fetching Mrs. Hewitt was up early uh, and reading, trying to get back to sleep. She was reading the new Chernow biography of Washington, and she was telling me that he'd gotten into a fight with Charles Lee, which I, I know a little bit about, and that he had left Valley Forge and had gone to Philadelphia, and when he got to Philadelphia, he found them having a parties and balls, and he was enraged. Do you know this episode? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I am unaware of that episode, and I love that. I think that, that goes to what D.C. is today, disconnected from the reality of the country. Yeah, see, George Washington's wife... Uh, Martha Custis spent a fair amount of time at Mount at uh, Valley Forge, and that you know that's in other words, he turned out the whole family to be there with the troops, and the idea that uh, you know that's that's aristocratic, right? American the officers that are admire, admired in the American military, which is a very it's, it's uh, I almost said democratic. What I mean is republican in the sense of the founding fathers. That is, uh, we citizens rule under the Constitution. That's what that means to the founders. Uh, 
that a Republican institution means you can't have titles and nobility, and the officers fight alongside the men. And George Washington did that very much. And he said, well, uh, all of the Lees, uh, Harry Lee and Charles Lee, they, they did too, right? But that didn't mean that they, go, they didn't go party when other people were shivering in the snow outside town. I, I, I bring it up because I believe that the Biden family is a privileged family in the sense that they have exploited their office for advantage. And I believe the Bobolinsky press conference needs to be explained because either Bobolinsky is lying or Joe Biden is lying. And I want to play for you the, the Biden spokesperson yesterday, Jamal Brown on Cheddar TV, responding to the Bobolinsky allegations. Cut 15, please, for Dr. Arndt. There were more accusations made this week. Uh, on that most watched Fox News interview a couple nights ago from Tucker Carlson. Did those meetings happen as they had been alleged when Joe Biden was a private citizen? We're not going to waste any time on this smear campaign because it's just another distraction to distract, uh, uh, again, away from four years of Donald Trump. Dr. Arm, what does your common sense say about that exchange? Um, well, that was a yes or no question. <laughs> and, he did, and he didn't answer it. And he didn't answer it. So what do, what do we intuit from that? Well, that's, you know, they're, you know, what we know. This is like a lot of things, right? It looks bad. And and I, I'll tell you the worst thing about this, the most offensive thing to me about this whole thing is that Twitter has restricted the yes. circulation of this thing. And that's just an arrogance of power, right? I mean, there's a little software program that I use to do my expenses, and darn if I didn't get an email from the president of the company about how urgent it was for me to vote for Joe, Joe Biden. And that's an abuse of my contact information, which I didn't give him for any purpose like that. Well, these tech guys are just going nuts. They think they rule the world. Uh, they do. And yesterday they got a rebuke. Twitter shares fell 14 percent in after hours trading after the company reported its smallest growth in daily active users since it got... Uh, started reporting that figure. And I noted on Twitter last night, great week, brand yourself as partisan, get stuck on stupid, endanger your Section 230 immunity, and do your best to drive away users. They are branding themselves as hostile to the, you know, the hardcore 40% of the country that is center-right. I mean, there's 10% in between the, the 245% that might not notice, but we notice what Twitter is doing. It's a stupid thing that they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, this whole thing about the, you know, the coronavirus thing, that's obviously a subject ripe and proper for public debate and discussion. Yes. Because we're not just passive, right? We don't just wait for the CDC to tell us all the facts. Well, they, uh, YouTube has been suppressing for months anything, as they, they put it, that departs from the recommendations of the World Health Organization. Well, the World Health Organization has now come out against lockdowns and said that they were a mistake. And there's uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, one of the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, which people should look up. Uh, he, he told me that, that there could be north of 100 million people in the third world starve because of these lockdowns. And, and the point is, it's, this, the phenomenon is this. It's a mediated society now. That is to say, there's something between us and our government and that's only serious in, in, well, it's serious for two reasons. One is there is supposed to be something between us and our government, our representatives. But that thing is not to operate, this 
this distance between us and them in elections, which is our big constitutional duty and the one way we exercise influence on the federal government. And so, if you know, if you just watch Mike Wallace. Uh, Chris Wallace. Yeah, they, I always get him wrong. Both of them are. Anyway, never mind about both of them. Um, uh, if you watch him moderate that debate, he just said something I think is entirely improper. He said, if I can obey the rules, why cannot you two? And the point is, they don't have this, those three don't have the same standing on the podium. Uh, Joe Biden is the nominee of one of the two great political parties and has been through a huge process of gathering public support. And Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Why do we even need Chris Wallace? But then the next debate, second and last debate, it really ticked me off because on Fox, they interviewed him leading up to the debate. And it was a little bit like a sports event. They said, well, what is the moderator feeling right now? (laughs) Well, he's prepared very hard, and of course he's nervous, but he probably says she got her facts in a row, right? I thought she did pretty well, by the way. She did. But, uh, But that, you know, the point is, who are these people? When we come back from break, I'm going to tell you another story about who are these people. All right, don't go anywhere. Dr. Larry Arn and I, uh, fundamental things are afoot in this election. But if you're afoot this weekend, you need relieffactor.com. Don't, for, don't leave home without it. I took it in the first hour. I send it to Dr. Arn all the time. Relieffactor.com. I, I push Dr. Arn to use it every time. But he's got a doctor that believes in supplements anyway. I, this is the only supplement I take. And I checked it out with Arn's doctor, and he loves it too. Relieffactor.com. I carry in Kirkman, Resveratron, Omega. Get it, use it, be comfortable every day. I'll be right back with Dr. R. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue got started early this week. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, president of Hillsdale College. Everything you need to know and enjoy from Hillsdale is at hillsdale.edu. Hillsdale.edu. And there's an application there for you young scholars who want to go and actually go to college. Uh, hillsdale.edu is where you would go. Dr. Arn, I am, uh, I've been reading Tom Rick's new book on what the framers knew. It's called First Principles. And um, they really did put together a work of genius. Uh, and they left the press alone in that work of genius, as amended with the First Amendment. But we were talking before the break, the press has become something it has never been before, which is an obstacle, not a conduit. It's become a block on knowledge, not a conduit. A recent news story, and I knew the reporters very well. They did not call me even though they knew that I knew more about the story than they did. And they didn't call me. I can only conclude because they didn't want to know what was really going on. I, I don't know what to make of that. That is management of the news. And yeah. I think we're into that era now where the news is being managed for us. And I think it's, it's an economic nightmare for legacy media companies. They're going to lose. They're going to shed millions of watchers and readers because they're no longer trustworthy. Yeah, and, you know, that's happening. And and it's disturbing in a way because, of course, the news polarizes now uh, because you read the one you agree with. And that means that the left and the right in America don't don't share the same information anymore. But how can you explain, because it is breathtaking when you think about it, how can you explain the amazing coordination of reporting across the major media outlets? Because it, it's not happening because they're having powwows or even because there's a law. that comes You know, out. I actually know the answer to that. Antitrust law taught me years ago that companies do price signaling. 
And that is how the railroads and everybody else used to operate uh, in violation of the antitrust laws until the government figured it out. They would just signal prices by various ways. So they all read each other. They don't have to talk to each other. They cue each other, Larry. That's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just what antitrust is designed to break down. So they have congealed into a mob of the left and the mob of the left, like the Twitter blocking of the New York Post account, which is the most obvious indication of a phenomenon that is widespread and deeply disturbing. It is the lantern on what's going on. I see. Look, here's another thing. That's true, but people might react to that in more than one way. You know, there's an old thing about journalists. They love to get a scoop. And so, like, uh, you know, people have been fired. Like Tom Cotton's uh, uh, article in the New York Times that got an editor fired, right? Well, that that huge attention to the New York Times. And just by printing the article and the controversy about it, why did they fire the editor? Why, did, why didn't they just keep him right and do it again and again and make that place into, into a, a, a turmoil of intelligent debate left and right? Why don't they do that? And I think it's got to, it's, some element has got to be that they have an ideology. Yes. And this ideology makes them members of a ruling class. Like I, I think uh, Chris Wallace, whose name I've now gotten right for the first time, uh, I think he thinks that he is empowered some way to mediate presidential debates. And, and uh, that, you know, the Presidential Debate Commission, which is set up so that the two sides can, you, you explain this better than I can, negotiate with each other, then they start making arbitrary decisions. Right? They've evolved into a privileged class, and they are a laughing stock. And when they send out the poor chairman who's in his 80s, Frank Ferenkopf, to defend what cannot be defended, because Bob Dole came out and said, I know all these people, and they're all never Trumpers, all the Republicans on the debate commission. It's become what it was not supposed to be because it's not in the Constitution. It doesn't have a grounding in law. It just evolves to meet the needs, wants, wishes of D.C. See, if you, if you could, uh, you know... Wouldn't you like to rule for 24 hours? And, Just 24 uh, hours and, and smash that thing to pieces. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things you'd do is you'd say, you'd just publish a letter, open letter to your opponent and say, let's debate under the following rules. And you wouldn't need a moderator. There's no need for it. Uh, you know, who was the moderator of the Lincoln-Douglas debates? Exactly. <laughs> Nobody. And they, they listened, by the way. Yeah. Without it, we've, we've done that. We've played those great tapes, excerpts of the great tapes, of the recreation. They did not interrupt. It may, another thing is if they really get to argue with each other, it, it makes them better, right? Because then they have to face each other's arguments. And that, that process, you, you, you know, this is, it's actually exactly the same phenomenon as a seminar. What happens in a seminar, if it's any good, right? A bunch of smart people, and, they're, and they really want to understand this thing and everybody contributes. And what emerges from a class is not what, it, what you know, I'm, I'm the teacher, right? I go into the class with a plan. I never, and never more than just a plan. It does not survive first contact with no, the students, they, does it? The first time somebody opens their mouth, everything is different. You see? Well, that's, uh, debates are like that, too. They should be. They should yeah. not be brought back by moderators. I think Kristen Welker did a fine job. That's why we got transitioning from the oil industry. 
from Joe Biden. I'll be right back. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues on the other side, America. Stay with us. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue has been underway for a half hour. If you just tuned in to hear Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, we started early because at the bottom of the hour, we will be joined by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And Dr. Arn was kind enough to move forward. And I appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Arn, we're going to talk about the Senate Leader McConnell in just a second. I want to read you a headline. Uh, from this morning's Politico. A panel of federal appellate judges ruled Thursday that ballots that arrive after the polls close in Minnesota on Election Day must be segregated from ballots that arrive earlier, suggesting that future rulings could invalidate the the late-arriving ballots. In Minnesota, ballots are typically required to be returned to election officials by mail by the time polls close in order to count. But for the 2020 election, a consent decree signed by Democratic Secretary of State Steve Simon, mandated that ballots postmarked on or before Election Day and received within seven days would count. The 8th United States Circuit Court of Appeals panel split two to one on its order that the late arriving ballots be segregated, which would allow them to be removed from the final count if a court later threw them out. The judges ruled that the case was likely to succeed on its merits. I bring this up because the Supreme Court, and I'm going to be one of the few conservatives to pray John Roberts here, has been trying to avoid being involved in an election that might not be close by deferring decisions. Amy Coney Barrett, the new justice, has has done a very uh, smart thing and neither recused herself nor participated, claiming conveniently and truly that she just got here uh, and give me a chance, which also keeps her from ruling on recusal or on the cases. But the courts are hovering over this election, Larry Arn. What do you make of that? Well, um, first of all, the the political process uh, tightly meant means the way we elect our representatives. And so that should be left in our hands as much as possible. And the states have priority. And, you know, the, just read the Constitution. The states set up electoral systems and decide how things work with some limits, like two senators elected statewide, things like that. And so the courts have, re- have changed that a lot by reapportionment and equal representation of races across congressional districts and stuff like that. But in general, what you want is you want the people by settled uh, methods, let's say, and settled is a big word, right? If the electoral system is changed all the time, and, you know, there are huge plans to change it if uh, one party sweeps, uh, if it's changed all the time, then you can't rely on it. And so the point is, the courts rightly have a standoffish attitude about that. And then at some point, however, it's still true that the the point the courts get their highest authority. Well, all branches get their highest authority from the Constitution. Their highest constitutional function is to compare a law, an ordinary law with the Constitution pursuant to which it's made. And so, you know, if this thing turns into a mess, they will have to be a factor, and they have a duty to be a factor, and they will be a factor. But it's very good that they're approaching the problem in a gingerly fashion. I agree. And I wish conservatives who are upset with the Chief Justice and Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett now would remind themselves it is better that they not be involved, but they will be if they have to be. Now, Dr. Arm. Leader McConnell is coming up at the bottom of the hour, and we were talking about him during the break. 
And you remarked that there is such a thing as a legislative temperament, and your estimate is that he possesses it. Would you expand on that? Well, the spirit of the legislature is deliberation. That means, you know, that's the process of thinking that leads to a choice, which leads to an action. Uh, and deliberation is much more, uh, takes up much greater percentage of the time and effort of the legislature because they don't have to act on a particular schedule. I mean, sometimes they do, but in general, they've got time and they argue, right? And so the great leaders of the legislature in America, you know, Henry Clay, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tip Lyndon Lee, Johnson, early Reagan years, right? Yeah. What are they? Those are guys that, that uh, guys and girls, and what they do is they talk with their caucus and with the body as a whole. And they, they don't come out and take a hard position that I'm going to lead the Senate this way or the House of Representatives that way. They come out and they say, well, we're going to talk about this, right? And uh, Mitch McConnell has been incredibly good. Well, let me contrast that with the executive temper, right? Executive action is different. It, too, involves deliberation first, pray that it does. But on the other hand, the executive is not in control of the timetable because events happen, right? And his job is to execute, you know, cognate with <laughs> execution. Um, and he has to do it on a schedule that is prescribed often by events. And so there, action, choosing and acting are the hallmarks. And so that's one reason why people who are great legislators often don't make good presidential candidates or presidents, because uh, they haven't practiced. And it's interesting about McConnell that he's been, you know, he's been there a long time, and he's been amazingly effective at holding the caucus together. And I think that's partly, I think he's a very purposeful man. I know him a bit and admire him. Uh, I think he's a very purposeful man, but on the other hand, he always listens before he talks. A unique thing in D.C. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, there, there are uh, some specific duties that distinguish the Senate. They confirm the judges, they ratify treaties, and only they get to do those things. Mm -hmm. so, and they are elected for six years, which is a long term. In Federalist 62, they talk about why, and it's because they want a great stopper in the sink. They, they, they want a slowdown, a break upon the rapid actions of the House or the executive actions of the president to sign a treaty. They want a great break. And I think the American people, maybe because of social media, are growing impatient with the great break, Dr. Arndt. Yeah, they, well, I pray not. But, uh, well, the, 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 the list of things that the Senate is supposed to bring includes, it's a stopper, and that's a feature of bicameralism. The House is a stopper, too. Senators are expected to be more experienced and to have one, they have longer terms, three times as long. And that means that they have a step distance from the uh, electorate more than, uh, than representatives do. And that means they have latitude to think at large, time to learn. And so they're supposed to bring wisdom and deliberation to the thing, to, to their work. Now, it's an odd thing that's happened in modern times because uh, 
the great majority of the seats in the House are safe seats. That is to say, it's very likely that a Democrat or a Republican is going to win before the election even starts, whereas the Senate is more tightly drawn. And so there have been instances in recent years, and, and McConnell has helped overcome this, um, where the Senate is more cowardly than the House, uh, more likely to punt, uh, less likely to be able to make an imaginative decision. Uh, and and uh, McConnell, that, that's the, the hill he's climbing, because, you know, the Senate is you know, not in its great days. The whole legislature is not in its great days. And he is, in my opinion, made the Senate more effective than it would have been without him. There is only one part of the Constitution which cannot be amended under Article 5 of the Constitution. Only one thing. Yeah. Uh, the states may not be deprived of equal suffrage in the Senate. By the way, I believe that makes it impossible for D.C. to be a state along with the 23rd Amendment. But they may not unless everybody agrees to get rid of a state. They cannot be denied their two senators. That's been a gra- that drives the left crazy, Doctor. Yeah. Why does it drive them crazy? Well, uh, some of it is, uh, you know, the simple partisanship of which both sides are guilty. That is to say, they think that they have a natural advantage in the popular vote, and so they just want a big national popular vote. Uh, I predict, I believe that they would likely change their minds in a heartbeat if it looked different than that. If they had an electoral college advantage. Uh, the Electoral College, the purpose of it, and the, you know, the purpose of the Senate is to add first just two, let two houses, right? That means every law has to go through the same process twice, and that's an enormous change. But then to add this seasoning and critical distance from the immediacy of politics, they're to do that too. Well, the Electoral College serves similar functions. Its purpose is to spread authority across the country. The great challenge of America, and we face it today in a different way than in the founding, they looked out upon this great continent, and for a long time they didn't know how big it was, and they're going to try to govern it all, and so the people living way out heck and gone from in, in the West, they need authority, they need influence. Well, today, the exurbs and the rural areas need influence. And they get it through the Senate. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt coming up after the break. Leader Mitch McConnell joins me. Dr. Larry Arnn is my guest as we conclude today's Hillsdale Dialogue in advance of the election. We have to go to Switzerland again, or at least I do, Dr. Arnn, after this weekend because the race for the GOP nomination in 2024 begins as soon as the ballots are counted tomorrow or next week. And you and I will talk a lot about that. We went to Switzerland last time when Donald Trump won. But the one thing we don't have to be in Switzerland about is the Senate races. I myself, you're non, Hillsdale can't be partisan, but I know you know John James in Michigan, and we're on all across Michigan. You may know Jason Lewis in Minnesota. I suppose you know Susan Collins in Maine and Joni Ernst in Iowa and Martha McSally in Arizona and Tom Tillis and David Perdue in North Carolina and Georgia, respectively. These are all quality people, and they are very diverse. And that's what the Senate needs, are people of principle from different parts of, this, of the country you were just describing that know that they're there to represent an entire state and to do so firmly. That's it. Yeah, and that's, you know, so that's the function of the Senate. Because, you know, if, if you're, you're going to try to bind up uh, together a great country 
and leave it free and in charge of the government, then spreading the vote out is one of the elements that you would need. Now, I suppose there's an alternative plan now, which is if we could just get all the authority gathered into the cities, then we could set up administrative procedures, which are, by, by the way, now very far advanced, so that you can govern in detail the activities in every town and village the way you do in every city. And that's, you know, an alternative view of how to unite America. That's the, the, you might call that the European Union approach to uniting a great territory. And the trouble with it is rules are made from far away. And, you know, and I can tell you in education, that's disastrous because the money tends to get concentrated where the powers are. And the, the powers, the, the places where the powers are in education are not full of teachers. Indeed, the non-teachers outnumber the teachers in public education, which is a scandal. So the point is, uh, the, 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 the status and importance of the Senate is an important element of our constitutional fabric and an important element of our ability to unite the country. Amen. And I, I, as our last comment before the election, I wish people would focus on the fact that we are a freedom people. And if they just focus on that, do you want your freedom or do you want less of it? More of it or less of it? Decisions on any particular issue become very easy. If you don't mind giving up more, you might think there's more security that way. I don't believe it. But you might you have to give up your freedom if you want more security. And I don't think we want to do it, Dr. Art. I really don't think we would like that kind of an approach. Well, I emphasize that I don't think the choice between freedom and security is a real choice. Because, you know, did you get security in the Soviet Union? True. They can come and arrest you in the middle of the night, right? And then you're done. They can do whatever they want to with you. And so that, that you know, that's, you just have to remember, in the end, if you delegate authority to control everything, to control people because people need control, the only people to delegate it to are also people. So, so you'll have a problem, right? It's so my not, last question to you, if we wake up on Wednesday or Thursday and Donald Trump has been reelected, what does it say to you about the country? Well, this deep division, you know, first of all, I fear the electoral changes that might follow on an election of the, uh, the, the other party. I mean, the things that they want to do look to me like they'll make it impossible to beat them. And, uh, and that means that the system will ossify. Uh, I don't think that they intend tyranny. I think they the, the radical elements of them intend brave new world, cut off everything and start over in some new direction, un, uncharted at the outset. But I, I fear those things, right? But if if Trump is reelected, uh, then I think that this conflict, this deep division that we have in our country, that's going to go on. And uh, I think it's by the time it's resolved, and I think it has to be resolved eventually, then by the time it's resolved, the coalitions in politics will look very different than they look right now. They're changing right now. And, and that will be okay. Yeah. Dr. Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College, thank you. Leader Mitch McConnell joins us next, America. Stay tuned. 